Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2020, another epidemic continued to wreak havoc in the United States, one that had been around much longer than COVID-19. Nearly 70,000 people died of an opioid overdose. From 1999 to 2019, nearly 500,000 Americans have died of an opioid overdose, and hundreds of thousands of more have struggled with addiction. It's hard to wrap your head around numbers like these, but each death was a tragedy mourned by friends and family. In his new book, Dear William, David McGee shares a heartbreaking account of his son's addiction and eventual death of opioid overdose. In a period where deaths are calculated by the thousands, stories like these show us how personal grief and loss really is. David is a gifted storyteller, and his memoir is also filled with keen insights about family and a search for identity. And since I'm still finishing up parental leave, David sat down with another gifted storyteller, John Archibald, for a special bonus episode of The Reckon Interview. This is a conversation about grief, atonement, and ultimately about finding hope. So I hope you'll find some of that in this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. I'm John Archibald, sitting in for John Hammetry on your Reckon Interview, and today we have David McGee, best-selling author, uh, and my former boss, to be uh, to be transparent, with a heck of a running jump shot from the right side of the bucket. And David has his new book, Dear William, coming out November the 2nd. David McGee, welcome to the Reckon Interview. Thank you. You were the hardest man to cover in basketball, I know. You, you, you are so tenacious that I would go home with bumps and bruises and I was never the same. That's the thing about John Archibald everybody probably does not know. You were a wrecking machine on the basketball. Well, I've had, I've had some politicians tell me the same thing. <laughs> I wanted to start out with the first, the opening paragraph of your book. The officer standing in the doorway raised his arm when I stepped forward, blocking my entrance to my son's apartment. I tried to peer over his blue uniformed shoulder to gaze around the corner to where the body of my son sat on the couch. My precious William, I saw him take his first breaths at birth, and I'd cried as, he, as I looked down at him and pledged to keep him safe forever. Now, within a day of his final breath, I wanted to see him again. Please, I said to the officer. Listen, he said and I dragged my eyes from straining to see William to the officer's face. His brown eyes were stern, but not unkind. You don't want to see this. I do, I said. It's my son, dear William. Mm. You asked me before we cranked up, I mean, about how hard this was to write. I mean, that's hard for me to hear. I don't know how I got it out writing it. Let, Let me just say, John, no human should find their child dead. I mean, you know, brings tears to my eyes just saying it now. No human should find their child dead. It's unlike anything. It's so surreal, but it is so 
real. It's heartbreaking. Let me say up front that, you know, this book deals with a lot of real personal situations. Mm -hmm. A lot of them that certainly in the moment were tragedies and a lot of them that forever will be tragedy. But you find sort of a, a way to end that with with hope and maybe even happiness at times. Yeah. How does that happen? First, tell us about William. You know, thank you for asking that question. That day I found him dead, he was in Nashville, and he'd been doing well. You know, he, he graduated from Ole Miss, University of Mississippi. He'd been a student in the Honors College. He ran on the track team in the 400 hurdles. He was so sweet. I mean, he was that child in the church choir singing This Little Light of Mine with everything he could belt out. But he treated his anxiety, I think, with self-medication, right? And so at the end of his life, I mean, the drugs had turned him into a different person. So he was doing well in recovery, but doing well in recovery is the addict's Achilles heel. They think they're back, and so then they can relapse, but they'll do the same amount of substance they used to do, and it'll kill them, which is what happened to William. And I remember my wife, when I finally got with her later that day, and she was literally lying in the floor, sobbing. And I kind of crawled down there by her. You know, she said, I just hate that people will remember him as a drug addict because that was his last act on earth. And, and I think that's true because there is such a, a stigma attached and you do get that label and people picture him that way if they didn't know him. So that part was really really hard. And so part of this book, I think, John, is about attacking that stigma and trying to break it, to bring humanity that he was just a human who had a disease and he struggled. And oh, by the way, I think he inherited a good bit of it, right? And that's what this book is about. It's it's about being breaking the stigma, about putting a face on this family problem, and trying to use my son's life in our story to just try to literally help some other human being avoid that fate. And just so listeners know, he died of an opioid addiction. He, he died. That's exactly right. And you talk in your book a lot about addiction, although that's not all it's about. Yes. Um, but, but we're talking about addiction, whether it's it's you know, red wine or, oh, yeah. or your cell phones or work or yes. all sorts of addictions that... I had two of those. Yeah, that, but they're just woven throughout. <laughs> Which I mean, is not funny, but I laugh at the... Right. Yeah, it's woven throughout right. because I they say, John, like this is a family book, honestly, because I felt like my... So you really just led me to something here. So a lot of people when they hear Dear William, a father's memoir, you know, of addiction, recovery, love and loss, they're thinking I've written like a beautiful boy book like David Sheff wrote, but my son dies. Well, that's really not the fact. What happened is after I found him dead, I stepped back and realized, I mean, he had a disease, but it's not just one thing. Like they say family is at the root of our socialization. And I don't think there's any question that's true. But conversely, family is at the root of our pain. And a lot of what is embedded in addiction is shame, pain, who are we, you know, this hole we're trying to fill. And so I stepped back and thought, 
I need to help make sense of this for myself, for others, because it is much more, there is so much more to it than my son William succumbed to drugs and had a problem he in a disease he couldn't manage. Honestly, the family had a role in it. And I got to tell you, John, I had a role in it. I mean, I did. And I write a lot about that. Did I kill my son? No. But did I have a role in it? You might remember a part in the book where he's a teenager. I've caught him drinking. And I am livid. I'm livid. And I'm scared to death because I don't want him to get the bug. You know, and I sit him down and I'm just going to ream him. Like I pour myself a big, tall glass of red wine and I sit down on the couch across from him and I'm like, son, what are you thinking? How could you do this? You're, you're going to put everything you have, your good grades, your sports, everything at risk. And I'm waving my glass of red wine that I'm sipping on for the evening And I was just too foolish to be able to understand what I was doing. First of all, there's a lot in this book (laughs) besides that. There's your own search for your birth parents, your siblings that you didn't know. Yes. There's your own, I mean, and you're brutally honest about, you know, what I think from the book you perceive as failures in your own life, whether it's drinking, infidelity, really personal issues, parenting. I failed at all three of those. Talk about why it was so important for that to be in the book. And if you can, Mm. you know, the reaction Mm. of your family. So it was important to be in the book because, number one, I don't think we men... I remember when you and I were had that men's basketball group, and I know you still have that group, but I moved away, sadly, from that. But, you know, we, we would say, I love you, and talk about, well, we should say that kind of thing more and ask about each other's families. And But we men don't still do enough of that. We try to put a veil of toughness on. And I did that even in the last decade when I was really rebuilding my life and putting it back together again. I didn't really let people beneath to really the suffering, I think, that I had been through and what was there. And so I reveal all of that in this book to put a different face on fatherhood, a complexity, an understanding that it's not just this black or white thing, grit or tough or yes, I can shed a tear. There's a whole lot of complexity to a lot of us men, and I think probably all men, if they let themselves go there, that that is more like pulling the accordion where there's all these ripples in between. And my wife, honestly, I did a first draft of the book and I didn't go that deep and reveal as much. And She said, you know, she's more modest and shy and quiet and not the kind of person to just put everything on your sleeve than I am. But she said, David, if you're going to do this, you got to dig down deep. You got to get to the pit of your soul and let people understand what happened. And that's the only way anybody's going to be able to make sense of this or understand. And so I did that. And she urged me to. But, you know, it's hard for her to read because, you know, there's a scene in there where I'm at Christmas dinner with a girlfriend's family. And, you know, she had to go back and read that. And I I think she's probably the hero of the story, honestly. To keep your family together. I mean, everybody told her to throw me in the ditch. 
And she probably should have. But I think she saw when I came back that I would never do that to her ever again. And I've not. That's how she's dealing with it. I'm not going to say she loves it. Let me be honest. Talk, you talk about the basketball team. We could say, uh, I love you, man, as long as you weren't hitting the game winner over us. But, you know, <laughs> at that time, but, you know, but, yeah. but that's a superficial thing, too, because right. because all that time we were playing, I had no idea that any of that happened, that yeah. you had lost a son, that yes. you had another son who had OD'd and right. fortunately is still with us. And nine years sober. Nine years sober. People think, I, like they say to me, it's so nice of you to write this book to honor your late son, William. And I go, oh, I got a surprise for you in here. William is gone. I can't bring him back. This book will not bring him back. And you really can only honor somebody who's dead so much. Let's be honest. The payoff of this book is that we learned some things. And my son Hudson, the story that has not been out, was nearly dead at a fraternity house the year before William died. And I'll save some of those details for the book, but, uh, you know, he had a miraculous recovery and today he's my role model and mentor. And that's a lot of the reason I wrote the book because nine years sober, he's such a beautiful human. And before that he was kind of the walking dead. He was just that guy, fun, sweet, but the college student who you see a dime a dozen of, you know, going to the parties, and once he sobered up, that sweet, beautiful human that God created began to shine again. That's what we're after. We're after freeing the souls of people that we were meant to be. And, you know, that's the aim of this. And back to that basketball thing. First of all, you've made me cry two times so far, and we're just getting started on this. I loved that basketball thing. People ask me all the time, do you miss anything about Birmingham? And I go like, oh, the basketball group. And even though I, I didn't share it because my scabs were kind of still healing and I, I just wasn't ready to put all that out there. And, and you and I were, I mean, we still are very close friends and other people out there I was the same with. But I, I just wasn't there to even myself. I was just still putting the pieces back together and but I have to tell you, I'm leading to a point here. That group helped me get through it. If you could assign credit to this book, to the some of the success we're having, building a center on the University of Mississippi campus named after my late son to help other students, and that basketball team, that that had a lot to do with it. I'm serious, like because I was so lonely at the time. And it gave me a purpose. You said, hey, there's some guys who are playing basketball at the Y. You should come out. And I did. And, and for a few years, it was my number one favorite thing. And I think that relationships like that are so important. Seems like that's relevant to the whole world right now, as uh, particularly you know during the pandemic, as people are more and more isolated and, and oh. you hear more and more people with mental health issues and just being inside their own head and their own darkness sometimes it's good to be able to find people to talk to even the, if it's not about no. the things that you that even really if it's about. not about the thing right it's a it is about the thing because that's the core of your foundation dancers gymnasts uh, you got to be strong at the core i think that applies to everything in life so good friends go a long way i want to touch on the pandemic for a minute so first first let me say this i get to do 
a lot of work with students. I don't work at the William McGee Center. Uh, we've built at Ole Miss, but I do work at the university. And so one of my projects is I get to help build that thing. Even so I don't work there, there's, I'm not a professional counselor, or right? So because my late son's name is on this, I get so many calls. And it's not just from Mississippi. They come from Alabama, California. People know, they think they can talk to me because I lost a son and we do this type of work. Well, before the pandemic, I'm going to say, let's say, I recognized there was an epidemic of anxiety and youthful addiction and parents. I mean, but let's say that was a six on the scale. What's happened since the pandemic is a crisis of which we are barely getting our finger on in this country. And I'm sure it's worldwide, but we have school children, youth have been damaged. They've lost structure. Their, their anxiety has soared. We, John, are walking into the greatest epidemic of youth mental health and substance misuse of a scale that we cannot imagine. I'm going to say it's now a 10. Sometimes the calls are more than I can keep up with. There's, there's, there's some troubling things happening out there. I'm really concerned. And this book is coming out at a good time. And I selfishly it's not because I want more royalties or I need my name on a list. I need this book to get passed along from one human to another and to make a lot of noise because humans need some help right now like nothing I've ever seen. Coming up after the break, more from David McGee and John Archibald. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. So you talk about, I mean, even as you're writing the book, mm. the, about the therapy of the book for you, yeah. I guess, uh, in ways. And, you know, I feel that too, you know, uh, how did that process mm. change you? You know, I went away as a writer. I had always been a writer my whole life. And I, you know, I wrote books that were like leadership and business books. And I, I made some money on them, but I didn't ever feel good about them. And so a lot of what this book was. So when I had my own fall uh, 11 years ago to addiction and it was prescription Adderall, as readers will find out in Dear William, that was not a good experience. I don't really recommend Adderall to anybody. I got it from a doctor. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of medical reasons and in the right doses, it helps a lot of students and adults. But I'm just saying, for me, I'm not a big fan. It, it ruined me. It was just a high dose of speed and it ruined me. All right. So when I had my fall, I decided I was just going to quit writing. And what I did was I didn't, I'd been doing it, hosting a national television show for heaven's sakes. I don't know what, what I was thinking. And so when I had my fall and I came back, I decided this can't be about me. I'm going to go behind the scenes. And so when you encountered me as this manager you're talking about, I, I was in a different version of me where I wouldn't write at all. And I used to have, I remember the president of the company at the time here used to say, you're a writer. Why aren't you writing? You, you're leading content but how come you're not writing? And that was part of my wound. I think that I felt part of my shame, John, was I, I didn't feel like I was a good enough writer to write. And I said, I'm just, 
yeah, I'd had a I'd had a bestseller in France. I mean, I'd had a bestseller in India, and I was ashamed of the books because they were like business, the John Deere way, how Toyota became number one. I mean, fine, but they weren't that well written. I have to be honest. I, I just wasn't really into it, so I could get a contract and do it. Finally, I'm with my son William the week before he died. I was worried he was struggling. He'd been doing really well in recovery. I could see in his eyes. I, I, I was afraid he was relapsing. And when I was with him that week, he's like, what are you working on, Dad? I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this book I kept putting off, The Greatest Fight Ever, John L. Sullivan, Jake Kilrain, and the birth of American sports hype. I had a contract to write this book. But I, it was kind of like the other leadership books. I kind of liked the story, but it was maybe just a good story. I, I don't know if I really wanted to write the book. And William was looking at me like, Dad, Dad, you, you need to go write your book. You need to write your book. And that was the first time I ever thought, like, my son William helped me get there. And I thought if I ever do write something, I think he's right. I need to write this story of what we faced and what we've dealt with. And so the long answer to that is, John, what it felt like is I was writing this love letter to my late son every day, even though the book is not just directly to him, it was to him because that's what he told me to do. And I'll be honest, who knows if the book is any good or not, but I can tell you this, it's the first thing I've ever written that I'm proud of. I can stand behind. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, that it's interesting. You, you wrote in the book about, and, and I guess this is what you were referring to about one of the books you had written. Uh, I can't remember now who, which one it was, but it, it you got it at a New York times review that you, oh. that, that was not exactly oh. flattering, I guess. Oh, and it was a half a page. Really? <laughs> and that, and I wasn't quite, I, I can't remember exactly the chronology of, of how and down, but, but in my oh. mind in the book, as after that, you were ashamed to be around people in Oxford and you, I was lit out so of town, ashamed. Oh, I think I ran away. Like literally, I, I literally moved away and I had so many Oxford writer friends and I was embarrassed. And, and you know what? Did I'm going to run away from writing then. I, I ran away from, I, I wrote a few more books after that. But, but I'd already started running away from myself. And so the writing just got worse. Like seriously, every word in that, alt, in that review that ripped me upside down was right. And I knew it. Every word in that review was right. And it was big. It was like a half a page in the Sunday New York Times. And every word of it was right. I knew it was right. Yeah. The criticism, criticism only hurts when it's true. It really stings when it's true. And somebody asked me, my wife said, are you going to be okay if you get bad reviews on this book? I was like, if I don't get any reviews, if I get bad reviews, I'm okay. I mean, I, I, I can stand behind this one. They, they are not, it, whatever they say about it will be true and I can stand behind anything. We've talked a lot about William and, and addiction and I want to talk more about the center before we yeah. leave. But first, the, the search for family yeah. is fascinating. Talk about where you came from and how you found out more about it. You know, I think that's my favorite arc in the book because like you said, there's a few things working in a thread here in this book. And so I was adopted, you know, and I was dropped in. I was adopted by a university professor in Oxford, Mississippi, you know, in 1965. And, uh, well, I was adopted in six, born in late 65 and adopted in early 66. And 
I grew up in a very dark household. It supposedly looked like the quintessential American household, but it was very dark and depressive. And it was really difficult for me living there. I always felt like somebody dropped me off at a strange babysitter's house and never came back to get me, you know? Um, but so I write a lot about that in the beginning. And then you get to the end of the book, which is really the order that it happened in. I didn't have to take literary license. It literally is the order it happened in. And you get to the end of the book and there's just this miraculous realities of who my family actually is. And suddenly by the end, I'm rich with family, just unbelievably rich with family. And yeah, it's a crazy story. I, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, seriously, uh, it's kind of spellbinding. So, but I'll give you a little taste of one thing. You've been up there, Camp Alpine for boys. So that's where my boys went in Mentone, Alabama, Alpine Camp for boys. And my boys went there. So we've always been really close with the camp. And it's just a small Christian boys camp in Mentone, Alabama. Well, a half brother who also went to that same camp and is the camp doctor. And, you know, later on, my, my daughter went to serve as a nanny for the camp director's kids. And she became friendly with this camp doctor and invited him to her wedding. And he came with his six children. Of course, we had no idea it was my brother. It was remarkable that we shared the same friends in the same tiny little remote camp and yet the bonding that happened between my daughter and her uncle and had no idea it was her uncle. Mm -hmm. Y'all didn't live in the same town, but you didn't live in the same town, didn't live in the same state, didn't, didn't, uh, you know, but I'll tell you something that I found also interesting. My life, I don't want to give away one of the punches, but by the time I answered all the questions, I found out, John, lo and behold, my life was created at a fraternity house on the LSU campus in 1965 at a drunken party. It one of the wildest drunken parties of the year. And it's so ironic that this entire book revolves around a university campus and a lot around a fraternity house. And, you know, I, I didn't even know all of that, but then I found out how and where my life was created and it really answers everything. And that's what I said, this addiction thing, it was in the DNA, it was in a whole lot of factors. Who was it that uh, that said that went to Arkansas just because it wasn't LSU? My birth mother. She'd gone to visit LSU on a spring weekend visit. She was a you know, beautiful high, high school cheerleader, class beauty. She'd gone thinking she might want to go to LSU, and she went there on a visit. And, you know, this happens, she ends up pregnant ends up in Arkansas. That's right. And it was interesting because it made me think of things in the past. I mean, I remember when you were here, I guess you were still searching for your birth your father. father. Side. And for a time, oh. you thought that might be, uh, Oh yeah. For, some, I, I had it. Some they, famous for, people. I, I was told that, which was also very troubling. That was really troubling because I, that was really believed as fact, um, by a lot of people. And, you know, it, for me, what a blessing now I've got this, these, these amazing brothers and sister and sisters, and I have them on both sides and I have such a great relationship. I have so many nieces and nephews and I see them all the time. One of my nieces that I never knew, she's now a student at Ole Miss and I see her all the time. We have lunch together and she comes over. I'm a guy that did not know 
a single human on this earth that I had blood with until my first son, William, was born in 1990. So I went 25 years without laying eyes on any blood, not one speck of blood on this earth, which is a strange feeling. Now, I mean, I got dozens and it, and it's so beautiful. And it's also beautiful because we didn't grow up in the same house. So we don't have any of the baggage and pain, you know, you, you ruined my Jersey and you know, I'm still mad at you or you got more attention. Uh, like none of that exists. So we just have a rich relationships. Y'all are still close. Yes, absolutely. It is amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm literally, overflowing with family and beautiful family. And it's just almost a joke since I was the loneliest cat out there for so many years. And, you know, it was tough growing up in that house on university. When you say dark, you mean physically dark You or is that emotionally dark? (sighs) Emotionally dark, Uh, physically at times, you know, there's a lot of that I still try to bury, but I mean, my adopted father, first of all, was the sweetest human. I'm telling you, he would not knowingly hurt a fly in like literally. And I mean, he loved to bake cakes for everybody's birthday. And he was the professor that tried to help everybody. But you know, he secretly had relationships with male students and it was like the elephant in the household. I had an adopted sister who just really battled some emotional issues and knew this as well, I guess. It created a lot of issues. I went through one or two really difficult, I mean, abuse situations. He wouldn't have hurt a fly. And I'm not excusing it. I mean, I used to hate him. And when I was young, I wanted to run away. And I think you might remember a part of the book where in fourth grade, I'm trying to stick a pencil lead in my, I'd heard lead will kill you. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try this. Um, I didn't even understand what depression and sadness was, but there was a darkness I was trying to run from, you know, of him trying to encourage me to pull down my pants, you know, and I just didn't understand what was happening. And I was so sad and I just wanted out. I just wanted out, but like they were the, At the same time, it was like the Cleaver household, you know? And I just remember I tried alcohol when I was 14, and I was like, hello, this is beautiful. Things funny, everybody's laughing. Give me more of that. So, yeah, it was tough growing up there. But, you know, I changed my life at the age of 45 when I made peace with all that. And I finally quit running from myself, and I... Honestly, I had kind of a faith moment and I just found the strength of forgiveness. And I I realized these people didn't do things to me. Whether they did or not is irrelevant. I'm just doing this to myself. And the blame is a poison. I am responsible for me. And when I gave the power of forgiveness to myself and to everyone else, it changed my life and I haven't been the same since. Was that when you got the tattoo? That's when I got the tattoo. And I still wear that. My wife, who was deciding whether to take me back at the time, thought, that's pretty nutty. You're turning into this middle-aged guy. You're going to get a sports car next? You know, I was like, yeah, I just need a reminder to be faithful to her, 
to be faithful to myself and I need it like stuck on my back. I need to never forget it. And I'll tell you what, I've been faithful to her every day since and I have been faithful to myself. I mean, every day is not perfect, but you've known me a long time now. It's weird. I I don't want to profess I have some magical solution for depression or something. I used to battle it a lot. I haven't been depressed a day in 10 years. I am, I found an incredible joy. Doesn't mean everything, doesn't mean everything goes my way. I lost a child, but it, it didn't, it didn't, I had the strength to endure. It didn't take my joy. It gave me sadness, but the foundation of who I am and what I'm on this earth to do didn't change. And so I had the strength to endure his death and continue to not let it splinter everything, every other relationship that I had. With that and the addiction, I mean, there's a lot, a lot there. <laughs> there's what, a lot. Yeah. What do you want people to take from it? That family matters and who we are matters. And if you don't think your children are paying attention to who you are in every action you have, they are. They are. And my son, Hudson, who's nine years sober, he told a story at his family day in recovery about me on a family beach trip. He and the cousins had come to me. Hey, Dad, we want to go get ice cream. You know, you can picture this. We've been on the beach all day. Somebody had made some pitcher of margaritas. I actually remember at that moment thinking my sister-in-law and her husband were drinking too much. I actually was judging them. I remember it. And I think I said something to my wife. I was judging them. And I'm thinking I didn't really have much at all. My son asked me for ice cream money. The cousins, is, is, they're all standing around. I reach into my pocket. I get out a $20 bill. And I remember this. I just reached my hand back to put my wallet in my pocket, and it just missed. And it's just such a small little thing. Who's even paying attention to that? It did happen, and I remembered it. But it was nobody said anything about it. Years later, in family day in treatment, that's the story my son Hudson told about me, his father. He did not tell that I coached 14 of his youth league teams. He did not tell that I taught his Sunday school class or that I tucked him in singing him this sweet little song. That's the story my son Hudson told at his family day that he was ashamed, that he was embarrassed in front of his cousins, that when he asked for ice cream money, I drank enough on the beach that day that I missed putting my wallet back in my pocket. That little innocent, seemingly innocent act my son was ashamed about. What we found out later when he nearly died is he, beginning in high school, was secretly drinking large amounts of alcohol. We had no idea. We thought he was being honest with us, you know. He was being honest, uh, right, Uh, just in complete lie. You know, whether he would have ended up with an alcohol or a substance problem or not, I don't know, but let's be clear. I had a role in it. So what I want people to take away from this is we have a responsibility to our loved ones, to our children, to our spouses. People ask me all the time, are you anti-alcohol? Are you anti-substance? Absolutely not. What I am is anti-robbing 
others of the right to in, for them to enjoy us, for them to respect us, for them to love us, for us to love ourselves, for us to respect ourselves. I just think it leads to a lot of unhappiness. In fact, I think it probably leads to 90 plus percent of our unhappiness. That is, that's an interesting story. And it's a lot of pressure to hold on to. I mean, and, and I don't know if it makes you feel any better or not, but my father being the complete teetotaler who wouldn't allow wine vinegar in the house. <laughs> I, I was doing exactly the same thing, sneaking out when I was 12 and 13 years old uh-huh. to rebel against my father yes. who, who wouldn't tolerate any of that. Uh-huh. So, but it's hard to know what's going to be the right direction. You don't know. And, and I have friends that thought they would, I'm going to show my, teach them how to drink like they do in Europe. And I find that doesn't work either. Meaning It might work if they don't have the bug. Look, DNA, we're still trying to understand the DNA factor in substance misuse. But look, it's strong. I mean, it's really strong. And when people, it can skip around. And and that's not the only factor. There's learned behaviors. I mean, there's so many factors. But let's not minimize the DNA factor, right? The way I was conceived, it was two people who probably had too much to drink. So maybe my odds went, you know, it's like passing down skin color, eye color. I mean, I I certainly had more in my DNA and my son's got, and and my daughter in the book battles eating disorder. It was a moment where our family, honestly, we'd gone from being that family on the church pew that everybody's like, oh, they're so sweet. What a precious family to everybody gave us up for dead and gone. Our, Our family Literally, none of my friends would have taken bets on our survival is staying together as a family unit. So it's really remarkable that we did. And we're incredibly close now because we live in a a truth and a reality that's, you know, so much sweeter. With that, and and we touched on it a couple of times about and and I mentioned earlier that, you know, somehow this book emerges with a sense of hope. And what what is that? Well, for starters, the hope is that. Right now, I'm, I'm going to say, if let's just take the United States of America. I'm going to estimate there's probably 75 million really unhappy people. And it's probably a lot higher. As we see when political races and everything, how people on all sides just get so unnerved, that's a pretty good barometer of some poor mental health in this country, honestly. It speaks to, to it's not the politics, it's the underlying problem right? Which is why everybody gets so upset because they're just not that happy. Um, So the hope is that what I found when I was stuck in my journey and I was like, am I going to end my life? What's my way out here? I thought I've waited too long. I've thrown everything away. I'm in my forties. I'm broke. I'm unhappy. I didn't know the way out. And I think most of those 75 million, and the number's probably higher, but let's say it's 75 million. I think most of them don't know the way out. They're stuck. They're completely stuck. I talked to a woman the other day in Meridian, Mississippi, who used to be on top of the world. I mean, on top of the world. And she's now on prescription opioids, um, doesn't leave the house much, spends most of her days depressed, on food stamps. She's like, I don't know how to get out of this. Like, literally. It one day turns into another, into another, and she's stuck. And there's just a lot of that. And the hope, though, is if you put some of these things in practice, like I did, where I realized the power of forgiveness and starting over and taking baby steps, I went and took 
a low paying job that was beneath anything I could have imagined. I finally had enough humility. I'm in my forties to think, quit worrying about what everybody thinks. I mean, I, I took an awful job by all practical purposes. It was an awful job, except guess what? It was an amazing job. I made no money. It was embarrassing theoretically, except it was so amazing. And so, you know, the concept of going down to your local McDonald's when, even though you have a college degree, I highly recommend it. I didn't work at McDonald's, but I, where I went, wasn't even close to that. Uh, it was, it was, it was lower pay, I think literally than that in a tough work environment. I think like we, we need to get over ourselves. Like once you get productive again, if people would just take, put one foot in front of the other and be self-sufficient, it leads to more self-sufficiency and it leads to more human engagement. Like it gets you out of the house. It gets you engaging with others again. And that's how you heal the human heart. It's like the basketball. It's like coming to the office to engage. And I think that we're so proud that sometimes the our, our, our inability to be humble and just take baby steps gets in the way. So we stay frozen and stuck. That's the hope. That's what this book is about. And I hope that's what people will get. I hope they will finish it and think, I can do better than this. We can do better. And that's the hope. And it's completely possible. But you do have to help yourself. Well, David McGee, that's probably a, a pretty good place to end. Although I'm going to ask you one more question, but you talk a, a bit in the book about, you know, your journey through the news business yeah, uh, and where you are perceived as a sort of wonder kind of, uh, yeah. of search engine optimization. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know, which in the digital world, that's basically the way people get seen on right. Google in this, in this day and age. And you were of course here at Alabama media group and, and Oxford elsewhere. What, how do, what do you see for the news business right now? Wow, you are going to make me depressed. <laughs> First of all, John, I can't tell you how much I miss it. I really cannot tell you how much I miss it. And for me, I felt called to help save it. And that sounds corny. And I don't mean like I'm some savior. I, I did understand the digital world. And I, I felt a purpose in trying to help journalists find the right story, to stay employed, to keep telling stories. And it makes me very sad that it's now taking deep decline everywhere. And I'm really concerned about it. There's some good nonprofit work that's being done, but there are some issues there. For example, it struggles to not be so vanilla. And the more commoditive news is, the more it will fail. And so that's one of the problems in the, in the nonprofit world I'm seeing it's harder sometimes for it to get audience. I think about it a lot. And what you don't know is I actually talk about you a lot. I, I get to speak. Sometimes journalism reverberates back into my conversation. And I tell people a lot about you because you should have been dead and gone in journalism. The papers were crashed and I wasn't here for that. But when the Birmingham News and the others were crashed down and they were going to make this move to a digital thing, a lot of your colleagues were out and lost jobs and you know, you're hanging on and there's no reasonable way that a, at that time, I mean, now you're a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, which still gives me chill bumps, but you would have been considered a Metro columnist or a, 
And, and those really had no future in this convergence. Yet you were a scrapper and a learner and a tinkerer and you fought your way through it. And, but you did that because you enjoyed the engagement with other people in learning because you are a learner. So my concern is that, and now it's kind of like what COVID has done to mental health and addiction. It's also done this bad thing to journalism where it sent all the journalists home. And really almost nowhere in the country have they come back to the newsroom. They're all still working at home, which they're half overjoyed about. But I think that that engagement that helped you become a Pulitzer Prize winner and make the transformation from print to a digital star, I think that engagement that helped you tinker and learn to get there is gone. And I'm really concerned about that. Well, thank you for that, David. David McGee, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you. I've enjoyed it so much and uh, appreciate you delving into these topics that are really needed. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to David McGee for sharing his story with us. And thank you to John Archibald for hosting this week's episode. Copies of Dear William can be found at your favorite local bookstore or wherever you buy your books online. And go ahead and pick up a copy of John's memoir, Shaking the Gates of Hell, while you're at it. If you're looking for ways to support those struggling with addiction, you can make a contribution to the William McGee Center at the University of Mississippi by going to mcgeecenter.olemiss.edu. The Reckon Interview is executive produced by me, John Hammontree, and this week's episode was hosted by the incomparable John Archibald. It was edited by the wonderful Kanika Codrington and the absolutely brilliant team at Edit Audio. If you're liking our show and you haven't yet, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's the easiest way you can support our show and make sure we get the chance to keep telling great stories about the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.